0: Well, good morning, friends. My name is Matt, and I get to bring the message today in our series called Speak Life. It is a series all about how vitally important our words are. As a matter of fact, our memory verse for this series, Proverbs chapter 18, verse 21, says, life and death are in the power of the tongue. The words that we use have an incredible ability to hurt or to help. to to damage others, or to lift them up. And so we've been looking at words that are life-giving words. Last week we saw that life-giving words are true words. And next week, Pastor Kenny is going to come, and he's going to talk about how when we speak life, that's speaking words of encouragement. And today we're going to see that words of life are words of unity, that build up unity in the body of Christ. Many of you know that I have two kids who are both in college in the Chicago area. They're about 40 minutes from each other, and two weeks ago, our daughter went up and picked up our son, and they spent Saturday together. They went out, and they got coffee, and then they went to the park and hung out. They went grocery shopping, because he doesn't have the ability to do that when she doesn't come and get him. They went and got lunch or dinner together, and then they went and got coffee again, Twice they got coffee in six hours. They are their mother's kids. And during that time, they called us, and we hung out, the four of us, on the phone. And I got to say that there is nothing that enlivens my parental heart. Like when my kids are spending time together caring for each other, loving each other well, experiencing unity together. It's so much fun as a parent to just watch them in that unity that they have. I didn't know if we would ever get there because there were so many days as they were growing up that were filled with fighting, that were filled with snipping at each other, where they were mistreating each other. And there is nothing that frustrates a parental heart or makes a parent angry like when one of their kids mistreats another or when they cause division in the family. And I think the Bible teaches us that God's father heart is like that. That he absolutely loves it when his children are united. When they care for each other well, when they are one. And it deeply disturbs his heart, even makes him angry when his children mistreat each other. When they cause divisions within the family. Unity and oneness are so important to God that in Jesus' longest prayer, his primary prayer recorded in the Gospels that we see in John chapter 17, it is the primary subject of that prayer. And just a couple of verses of it, John chapter 17, verses 20 and 21 says this, I do not ask for these only, that is for his disciples that are gathered around him, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, people like us. That they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. That they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. This is amazing. What is Jesus praying for here? That we would be one. That we would be united. And how united does he want us to be? He wants us to be one as the Father and the Son are one. How one is that? That's pretty one, right? The Father and the Son are totally one, and he says, may they have that kind of unity as they're in us. And what does Jesus say depends on our unity and our oneness? That the world would believe that the Father sent the Son. Gospel effectiveness depends on our unity and our oneness. And so how important is our unity and our oneness as God's people? Can we all agree it's pretty important? And so the New Testament is filled with commands for us to maintain that unity. Uh, Ephesians chapter four verse three: Maintain the unity of the spirit. Philippians two two: Be of the same mind, have the same love, be in full accord. Romans fifteen five: Live in complete unity with one another. First Peter three eight: Have unity of mind. Romans twelve sixteen: Live in harmony with one another. Philippians one twenty seven: Stand firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. I didn't want you to catch any of those particulars. I just want you to get a sense. I only read a few of the verses in the New Testament that are dedicated to us maintaining the unity of the spirit that God has given to us. And the Bible doesn't say we have to produce that unity. God has given that to us by bringing us into his family. Ephesians 4.3 says we only need to maintain the unity that he's already given to us. We have that unity in the family. God says, if you guys will just live into Christ-likeness, if you'll just live by the Spirit, you'll have all of the unity that you've ever wanted. Just maintain that unity that I have given to you. But the Bible also teaches us that there are some ways that we can use our words that can damage unity. And I want to cover those because we don't want to participate in those kinds of words that could damage our unity. All right, so I have three kinds of words that can damage unity in the body. And the first is gossip. Gossip can damage unity in the body of Christ. What is gossip? Gossip is talking negatively about others behind their back. Uh, Proverbs chapter 16, verse 28 says, A dishonest man spreads strife, and a whisperer separates close friends. Now, some of your Bibles where it says whisperer says a gossip separates close friends because the idea behind the Hebrew word here isn't just one who talks quietly. It's one who talks quietly because they're talking about someone else, right? And what do they do when they gossip about others? They break unity. They separate friends. Whoever covers an offense seeks love. Somebody does something wrong, whoever covers over that seeks love. But he who repeats a matter, he who brings up that wrong over and over again, behind somebody's back, hey, did you hear what so-and-so did? Can you believe the decision that they made? Whoever does that separates close friends. It damages unity when we participate in gossip. And the next chapter in Proverbs tells us one of the reasons that this is so damaging. The words of a whisper or a gossip are like delicious morsels. They go down into the innermost parts of the body. If I come to you and I tell you negative things about someone else, you can't unhear what I just said. It registers inside you. And it impacts what you think of that person and perhaps others around you. It goes down to our inmost parts and affects how we think of others. I I think this is why Jesus, when he was teaching his disciples, taught them direct communication. Don't talk about people behind their backs. Matthew chapter 5, if you've sinned against someone, go directly to them. Matthew chapter 18, someone sinned against you, go directly to them. Doesn't matter if you've done the hurting or they've done the hurting, go directly to them. Stop talking about people behind their backs. And the Bible also wants us to understand that it isn't just a sin to talk negatively about people behind their backs. It's a sin to listen to that. Proverbs 17, 4, an evildoer listens to wicked lips and a liar gives ear to a mischievous tongue. When people are sinning by tearing other people down behind their back, we are never to listen to that, to be a party to that. And so what do we do? Somebody comes to us and they start to talk about somebody else behind their back. They start to tear somebody else down behind their back. What do we do? We encourage that direct communication that Jesus encouraged. Hey, sounds like you're really frustrated with that person. How about if we go and talk to them together? Right? Jesus loves unity. He wants his people to be one. And it's sin for me to listen to this. So I, I'm, let's go and talk to them together. Let's seek resolution. Let's seek what we can in order to provide unity within the body. And so the first kind of speech that may be a part of our life that damages unity is the sin of gossip. The second kind of speech that the Bible talks about that can damage unity is the sin of grumbling and complaining. Grumbling and complaining is talked about all the time in the New Testament and in the Old Testament. And there is, of course, no greater example of what it is like to grumble Than the people of Israel as God miraculously rescues them from Egypt and brings them to a promised land. They grumble all along the way. It is easier to find times when they didn't grumble, right? Because they are grumbling constantly as they move along the way. In Exodus chapter 14, they grumble because they're trapped by the Red Sea and the Egyptians are coming. In Exodus 15, they grumble because they're thirsty. In Exodus 16, they grumble because they're hungry. In Exodus 17, they grumble because they're thirsty again. Now, these are all legitimate needs, right? Hunger, thirst, not wanting to die at the hands of the Egyptians. The challenge is in the tone in which they handled it. Instead of prayerfully trusting in faith, they grumbled about God, they grumbled about their leaders, they grumbled about the decisions that had been made along the way. And, of course, their grumbling and complaining only got worse as they wandered in the wilderness. In Numbers chapter 11, the Israelites grumble and complain about God's miracle food that he is sending them. Right? God is miraculously providing food for them as they wander through the wilderness And they grumble and complain because it's not coming in enough flavors. Numbers 11.4, the rabble with them began to crave other food. And again, the Israelites started wailing and said, if only we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt at no cost and also the cucumbers, melons, leeks, onions, and garlic. But now we have lost our appetite. We never see anything but this manna. What are the Israelites saying here? God, we know you are providing miraculous food for us. But we are going to grumble and complain because we want food that will make our breath stink. Right? We want onions. We want garlic. We want cucumbers. Remember when we had those things in Egypt along with slavery? Oh, if we could only go back to that time of slavery when they were working us literally to death. Do they really mean that? Probably not, but when we're grumbling or complaining, we'll say all kinds of crazy things. So God wants to end their grumbling and complaining, and so he sends a plague upon the people in order to discipline them, to say, guys, this has to stop. Does it stop? No, Numbers 14, that says Exodus 14, but it should say Numbers 14. The people are complaining because as they arrive at the promised land, they find out that there's armies that they're going to have to fight in order to take the promised land. And when they find out about these armies, we read in verse 2, "...and all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died in the wilderness." Again, they're they're grumbling and complaining about Moses and Aaron and the decisions that they've made as leaders, and they're damaging the unity of God's people. And so how does God respond? He says, I'm not going to let any of this grumbling people into the promised land. I'm starting over with an entirely new generation because I want to be free of this grumbling and complaining. Well, certainly they learned their lesson from that discipline, right? Right? Yeah, you know better, don't you? Numbers chapter 16. A group of the Levites said, we can't stand how much power is localized in Aaron and Moses. We want there to be more shared power. We want to say in how these things are going on. And they grumble and they complain against God and they grumble and complain against Moses and Aaron. And God says, more grumbling and complaining. And he literally, as you read Numbers 16, opens up the earth and swallows those who are grumbling and complaining. And how did the Israelites react to that? They grumbled and complained about the discipline that God sent. And so God disciplines them for grumbling and complaining about his discipline and sends a plague upon them because he's like, guys, you guys, we can't grumble and complain. That is the way of the world. And you are my people. When Israel would grumble they would speak according to the way of the world rather than the way of God, right? There's, there's the way the world speaks and the way that God speaks. And grumbling and complaining is the way of the world. And God says, I can't have that among my people. And grumbling and complaining is still the way of the world today, isn't it? It is our society's pastime. A few years ago, I was reading some complaints that came into the U.S. Forest Service about trails in the national parks. People wrote complaints like this. Trails need to be wider so people can walk while holding hands. There are too many bugs and spiders and spider webs along the trails. Pave the trails so that they can be plowed of snow in the winter. Chairlifts are needed to be in some places so that we can get to the views without having to hike to them. And my favorite, the places where trails do not exist are not well marked. Now, I'm sure that some of these complaints are jokes. I'm hoping that some of these are jokes, right? But grumbling and complaining is the way of the world, and it's the way of our society. We grumble about food if it's not exactly the way we want it. We grumble about our boss. We grumble about work. We complain about politics, no matter what politician wins. We grumble and complain about our schools, about our teachers. I I could go on like this forever, right? Because grumbling and complaining is the way of the world. And if grumbling and complaining enters into the church, then the church's witness is damaged and unity is damaged. Those things go together. And so when the church becomes a place where people are like, well, I I don't like how long the grass has gotten, or I don't like the way that person runs their ministry, or I don't like that kind of music, or I don't like, I don't like, I don't like. When church becomes a place of grumbling and complaining, unity is damaged and witness is damaged. And so God says, I don't want that way of the world, the way of grumbling and complaining, entering into the way of my people. And so we're to do all things without grumbling or complaining that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights. When we're free of that grumbling and complaining, that way of the world, then we experience more of the unity that God has for us and we're the witness that he calls us to be. So, So what are the kinds of words that damage the unity that God's heart desires for us? Words of gossip, words of grumbling, and finally, words of quarreling or arguing, particularly quarreling or arguing about non-essential matters. The Bible has warning after warning for us as God's people about quarreling or arguing about non-essential matters. Places like Second Timothy 2, Titus 3, Romans 14 warn us about arguing and quarreling about things that are non-essential. Now, let me take a moment in order to explain what I mean by non-essential. Let's start with the essentials. There are things about which Scripture is perfectly clear. The clear teaching of Scripture I would like to represent in a diagram with this black box. Should you kill someone who's innocent? No, you should not. That's murder. The Bible's pretty clear about that. Should you commit adultery? No, you should not. The Bible's pretty clear about that. Should you use your words to tear somebody else down behind their back? No, you should not. The Bible's pretty clear about that. Should you dedicate time out of your life in order to worship God? Absolutely. The Bible is pretty clear about that. But there are other areas in life about which the Scripture is perhaps unclear or they're unmentioned altogether in the Scripture. Let's represent that within this diagram by the larger gray box. There are all kinds of things that go in this gray box that are unclear in Scripture or unmentioned in Scripture, but about which we all have opinions and thoughts. I wrote down a few examples. The Bible doesn't say anything about school choices or how best to school children, and yet there are many opinions in here among parents about the best way to school children. The Bible may not be clear, no, the Bible is not clear, about where there is to be a line drawn about which movies are okay to watch and which movies are not okay to watch. And yet there are all kinds of different opinions in this room about that. The Bible doesn't say anything about what you are to call your backside. And yet one family's go-to word is offensive to another family. The Bible tells us that we are not to be drunk, and yet there are different opinions in this room about whether or not Christians should participate in alcohol at all. The Bible tells us that we are to use our resources for kingdom good, and yet there would be all kinds of different opinions in this room about how much you can own before you are wasting God's resources. The Bible doesn't address how a believer is to dress when they worship together. The Bible doesn't address what kinds of musical styles we are to use. And on and on and on, I could go forever, couldn't I? Because there are all kinds of issues about which the scripture doesn't speak clearly or things that aren't mentioned altogether. Those are gray box areas. Now, The gray box areas were different 2,000 years ago when the New Testament was being written. What kinds of gray box issues were they dealing with then? They were dealing with issues like, should we eat meat sacrificed to idols? Should we continue to participate in Jewish holy days or the Sabbath? Should we eat according to the Old Testament dietary laws? These are some of those matters of the gray box that they dealt with 2000 years ago and one of the most important chapters in the scripture about how we are to handle these gray box areas is romans chapter 14 romans 14 has all kinds of principles i won't be able to cover them all this morning about how we are to interact with each other about these non-essentials these gray box areas Romans 14.1 says, As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. Some of your Bibles have the word disputable matters instead of opinions. These are the non-essential areas, the areas where we might have some different views on these things. And one of the things that Romans 14 teaches us about these non-essentials that is so very important is that in the non-essential areas, in the gray box areas, we're always to seek to do what honors God the most. I don't hold my opinions in non-essential areas simply because my family held those opinions or because my friends hold those opinions or because it fits my desires the most. I don't hold my opinions or act in these gray box areas because it's what's most lucrative or most comfortable or because it fits with my politics. I hold my opinions on these gray box issues because through prayerful examination and careful consideration, I've come to the conclusion that it's what honors God the most. And one of the things we see in Romans 14 is that on a particular issue, You may prayerfully examine and consider what honors God the most and come to one conclusion, and I may prayerfully consider what honors God the most and come to a different conclusion, and we can both be right in those different decisions if our motive is honoring the Lord in those areas. In gray box areas, we can come to different conclusions in areas and both be right if our motive is honoring the Lord in those areas. So, so you may come to a conclusion about how best to school your kids for the honor of the Lord. And I may come to a different conclusion about that. And we can both be right within our settings as long as our motivation is honoring the Lord. Now I want to be clear, that is absolutely not the case in black box areas, is it? One person cannot honor the Lord by being faithful to their wife and another person honor the Lord by committing adultery. That's not the way the black box areas work. One person can't honor the Lord by building people up with their words and another person honor the Lord by tearing people down with their words. That's not the way the black box areas work. We're to be obedient and unified in those areas. But within the gray box areas, we can hold different opinions, and if we are motivated by honoring the Lord, we can both be right, which leads us to the next teaching I want to highlight from Romans 14, and it is this. In those gray box areas, we're never to judge, look down look down on, or quarrel with others about these non-essential areas. Now, I want to say right now, that doesn't mean you can't have discussions about them, but we're not to quarrel or argue about them. Verse 3 said, "'Let not the one who eats,' despise the one who abstains and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats for God has welcomed him. In those gray box areas they were dealing with, Paul says no judging, no looking down on others who have different views than you in these areas. You're both seeking to honor the Lord. That's great. Verse one says no quarreling or arguing over those areas of opinion or those non-essentials. There's a friend of mine whose church is a wonderful slash terrible example of when the church gets this wrong. Uh, Their church almost split over the issue of what kind of clothes you should wear to worship on Sunday morning. There was uh, one group within the church that said, you should wear dress clothes to church. After all, this is worship of the Lord. Lord. And God deserves our what? Our very best. And if we are unwilling to worship him through our very best by putting on the very best that we own, then maybe we don't understand what worship is. There was a whole other group that said we should absolutely not dress up when we come for worship together on Sunday mornings. Many of them had grown up in homes in which they had seen parents dress up on the outside and the inside when they had gone to church on Sundays. And for them, dressing up on Sundays was a symbol of that hypocrisy that they had seen when they were growing up, where a nice shiny surface was put on when we went to church, but life was a mess the rest of the time. They also said, I think we need to primarily be motivated by reaching the young families that are around us in this neighborhood, and dressing up seems like an unnecessary barrier in that. Eventually, the church had to have meetings to resolve wardrobe Gate, right? Which makes total sense because of how much Jesus in the New Testament have to say about what we wear, right? That's sarcasm. (laughs) Ultimately, there were a lot of people who left the church. Why? Because a group of believers couldn't be obedient to God's word and what he teaches in Romans 14 about not judging looking down or quarreling over these non-essential issues. This is a problem in church after church after church. And we live in an age in which after 2,000 years of things being black box issues, people are now saying, oh, no, 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 Uh, that's wrong. Those are clearly gray box issues. And an age in which people are taking gray box issues and making them black box issues and saying, no, no, this is what is most important. God says when it comes to those gray box issues, we're never to quarrel. We're never to be people who argue over those things and damage unity to the church through that quarreling or that arguing. So what are those things that damage unity? Three kinds of words that we might use. Gossip, grumbling, and quarreling that the scripture talks about that could damage the unity that God has given to us. And so... Let's look at this from a positive aspect. How do I speak words that promote unity within the body? How do we reach a place where what is natural for us is to use our words in a way that promotes unity within the body of Christ? Well, what have we seen over the course of the first two weeks? Jesus says that it is out of the overflow of the heart that the mouth speaks. And so if my words are going to be dedicated to unity, what needs to be transformed? My heart needs to be focused on things of unity. My heart needs to be all about unity and oneness in the body of Christ. How do I do that? I do that by focusing my heart and my life on those things that we hold in common rather than the things that we don't. I do that by focusing my heart and my life on the things that we hold in common rather than the things that we don't, which is great because the things that we hold in common are the most important things that there are in life. The things that we hold in common as believers are the most important things there are in life. Uh, There are things that we don't hold in common that are relatively unimportant. Are we all Packers fans? Vikings fans have just been beaten down so much they're not they're not even going to yeah sure fine whatever I'll be a Packers fan right are are we all fans of country music are are we all going to vote for the same people are we all going to school our kids in the same way there's all kinds of things that we don't have common ground about lesser things And if those lesser things that we don't have common ground about become the focus of our heart and our life, then we won't have unity as a body, and we won't speak words of unity. But God has given us unity and oneness about the most important things there are in the world. What are those things? Well, let me give you the two most important things that there are in the world. One, we have unity around a common leader. The focus of our life is a common leader. Jesus and following after Jesus in every aspect of our life is what unifies us. Everything in us is dedicated to him and doing what he would call us to do. And when we recognize that common leader, there is unity. There was a a psychology study at the University of Columbia several years ago. And this group of psychology students gave a survey to the University of Columbia Orchestra. And they asked members of the University of Columbia Orchestra to use single words to describe other members of the orchestra, other sections of the orchestra. And when they did that, here are the words that came up about the different sections of the orchestra. Percussionists. Any percussionists in here? Uh, they were viewed by their fellow orchestra members as insensitive, unintelligent, and hard of hearing. (laughs) String players, any string players? They were seen as arrogant, stuffy, and unathletic. Brass players were seen as loud and bullheaded. Woodwind players were seen as meticulous, but egotistical. Then the study took an interesting twist. It asked, how can these people who think these things about each other and who ultimately are such very different people come together and create such beautiful music when the Columbia University Orchestra plays? And and the answer that they came to is because when they come together, they all subject themselves to a common leader. The first leader is, of course, the music. They don't just play whatever they want. But even within the framework of the music, they don't play it with whatever flourishes they want. They all submit themselves to who? To the director. They all submit themselves to that common leader. And as they submit themselves to the director, they're able to produce beautiful music and experience that unity together. That's God's call to us. We, we are such a very different people from different backgrounds, with all kinds of different opinions about matters that are lesser matters. But God says we can have genuine unity if we submit ourselves fully to the common leader. And he is what matters most in our life. Romans fifteen five says, may the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus. We can only have unity and oneness when it is in the pursuit of Christ Jesus, when we are in accord with Christ Jesus. If other matters of life move to prominence in our heart and in our minds, then there'll be no unity. But if those other matters fade into the background and Christ is the one thing that is all-consuming and all-important to us, then we can have the unity that God so desperately desires. And so we focus our life on our common leader. And out of that, the second most important thing there is in life, we focus our life around our common mission. Jesus has called us to a common mission. No matter where we live, no matter what our job is, no matter what we do, he said, you guys, I've called you all to make disciples. That is your life mission. Philippians 1.27 said, standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. It's only when we're striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Participating in that common mission together that we can fully experience the unity that God has for us. Uh, When I played football, I played football with guys who were so very different. There were guys who were nerds and never got anything but A's and other guys who struggled to spell their own names. There were guys who were super popular and other guys that nobody wanted to be around. And yet when we were all out there on the field, There was this tremendous unity. I had people hug me on the football field who wouldn't have walked across the room to spit on me at any other time because we all had this common mission when we were out there, this common desire and mission to win those games. And Jesus has given us that common mission, a far greater common mission, and said, you guys, go and make disciples reach Scott County with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it is only when that is our focus, not, well, I wish this were different or I wish that were different. When we become internally focused, there's disputing. When we are externally focused and driven by our mission, then there is unity because God has given us that great mission to bring us together. I love the way Dietrich Bonhoeffer, before he was executed by the Nazis, uh, put it in his book, Life Together. He said, the more genuine and deeper our community becomes, the more will everything else between us recede. The more clearly and purely will Jesus Christ and his work become the one and only thing that is vital between us. How can we have unity? How can we be people who speak unity? It's only when our hearts and minds are dedicated to Christ and his mission above everything else in life when they come to the forefront and everything else in life recedes into the background, then we can have the unity that God so desperately desires among his children. Uh, I want to pray for that. There are some discussion questions that you can, they'll be on the website as well. And if you want to go through those in order to process what we've talked about today, or uh, if you'd like to go through them with your small group, you're certainly welcome to do that. Uh, But let me pray for us and for God's unity to be seen among his people here. Father, we thank you for the way that you've made that unity with us. We recognize we don't have to produce that unity. We simply have to maintain the unity that you have given to us as your children. And so, Lord, we ask that you would bring us together around the great common leader that we have, God Almighty, our Lord Jesus Christ, that you'd bring us together around the common mission that we have to make disciples and that those other things that we don't hold in common would fade so very far deep into the background. Lord, we we love you and we look forward to praising your name right now uh, and lifting you up because you are that great common leader in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.